Welcome to American Girlies, the podcast where Canadian historians read the American Girl novels. I'm Sonia Ann, and I was not an American girl, and I did not read these books as a child. I'm Hannah Sparwasser-Soroka, and I was not an American girl, and I did read some of these books. And I'm Margot Mathieu. I was an American girl. I owned a couple of the dolls, and I read most of the books. <laughs> In this season, this new project that we have from Baba Yaga, we're diving into the world of American Girl, and we're reviewing the books for historical accuracy, how they represent historical events for children, and sort of like how we feel about them now reading them either for the second time as adults or for the first time as adults, and for the first time for all of us as historians. I'm sort of reflecting on what what they're what they're doing, what what it seems like they're trying to get across. As to like... <laughs> Our guiding question here is should you hand this book to a child? Can a child actually learn history meaningfully from these very small, slight, little, light yeah. volumes? And what are they trying to say? is an American girl. So join us today as we yeah. begin with that most Brady and blonde of American girls, Kirsten. Today's book is Meet Kirsten by Janet Beeler Shaw. Uh, it was published in 1986. Uh, and I'm going to be giving you a plot summary, some historical context, and then we're all going to discuss what the hell we all just read. So stay tuned for the good, the bad, the ugly, and... The American. There we go. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, girlies. But I'm going to do a plot run through because not every American girly listener will know the canon. Kirsten is introduced on board a ship. She's moving to America with her family at the prompting of her uncle Olaf. She's introduced playing with her own doll, Sari, and she's playing with her best friend, Marta, whom she's befriended on the ship. It docks in New York City. They all have to undergo a health inspection to make sure they don't have cholera. Or typhus. Or typhoid, yeah, or typhus. They arrive in New York City, and immediately Kirsten gets lost. And it's very scary. She's chased by dogs. Some American boys laugh at her for trying to ask for help in Swedish. But then a kindly woman helps her and takes her back to the park where her family is, currently waiting for train tickets. And her family is like, we would never have left you behind in New York. And Kirsten was like, why weren't you looking for me? And this question is never resolved. (laughs) Um, But they take a train to Chicago. Kirsten and Marta think they're going to be separated, and they have this long conversation about how whenever they see the sun, they'll pray for each other. But then they're reunited in Chicago and board the fateful riverboat, the Red Wing, to Minnesota. And already there's terrible news because there's cholera on board. And of course, famously, Marta gets cholera the next day she's in the sick bay, and then the next day she dies. So Kirsten has now gone from being really excited for Minnesota to hating Minnesota's guts. Her family has to leave behind all their things, including Sari, and Marta's dead, and she doesn't know if she's going to like these cousins. But then within two pages, they've made it to the farm. Uncle Olaf is there. The cousins are lovely. She instantly befriends these girlies. And they all go climb trees together and play with dolls. 
So we start with her playing dolls with her best friend, and we end with her playing dolls with her new best friend. I just replace them. They're all blonde. <laughs> yeah, well, this is kind of the vibe. like <laughs> One in, one out. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, like, I was quite surprised, right? Like, I, I thought for sure there would it would end on, like, some amount of, like, tenuous relationship, right? Between, like, cousins and, like, this new family showing up, right? And then being like, mm, I don't know about this. But no, it just immediately they're, like, best friends forever. Let's go play dollies. Like, everything. You can be great. part of our secret no boys allowed club. Yes. So Kirsten's context, in 1854, which is when Kirsten's book is set, the Minnesota Territory was still a Minnesota Territory and not yet the state of Minnesota. And like a big chunk of the Minnesota Territory was part of the Louisiana Purchase. So this is land that the United States has acquired for the purpose of westward expansion. The territory was settled by about 5,000 settlers in 1849, but from the 1850s until the 1930s, over a quarter of a million Swedes went to Minnesota. And that's because of several things. There's a push factor out of Sweden, which is that agricultural work is dwindling because of industrialization. And there's a pull factor, which is the Preemption Act of 1841. And it basically meant that if you showed up in America's westward territory on federal land and you set up a household with a male householder aged above 21, and you worked that land and basically squatted on it, you could buy the land from the federal government before it ever went to sale for public consumption. So, And this policy was extremely attractive to uh, Swedish immigrants because it meant you could basically set up shop, work the land, and then once you'd worked it for a while and saved up money, you could just buy it. So you didn't have to buy land to start working it and to own it. And all of this is, of course, part of the the doctrine of Manifest Destiny. There is no mention of this in Meet Kirsten, that Uncle Olaf and Papa and everybody is a Manifest Destinier. And also there is zero mention that the territory they're moving into is occupied by people who aren't Swedish. Like, there are some depictions when she's on the on the riverboat up the Mississippi basically saying like wow this plane is so empty and the ground is so fertile the plane was not empty the ground was very fertile but the plane was not empty there were a whole bunch of indigenous nations living on it uh, mostly the Siouan speaking people doesn't get a mention in this one the other thing I want to talk about for the historical context is the whole riverboat cholera episode. Riverboats were the primary form of transportation. The Mississippi was the primary river, but there were lots of little tributaries and offshoots. Riverboats were also a massive vector for disease. The big, I mean, cholera is kind of the big disease of the 19th century. It spreads via fecal oral transmission. So basically, somebody's infected fecal matter gets into the water supply or the food supply, taints it, and then people consume it. Symptoms set in with cramps, diarrhea, vomiting, and pain. You become incredibly dehydrated because your body is basically purging itself of its entire contents. You become incredibly sunken and listless, uh, and you can die within 24 hours. You can die of the dehydration. You can go into shock and die. It's a really grim disease, and it's 
really awful because you are having vomiting and diarrhea to the point of death. Like you in Meet Kirsten, Kirsten is like a beautiful, or Marta is like a beautiful sick girl in a bed with clean linens. That's not how cholera goes. She has like a nice little consumption death. Yeah, she has like, exactly. She has the tuberculosis death uh, instead of the cholera death. And the cholera death is really grim. And I understand why there isn't a like little illustration of Kirsten watching while Marta just vomits every ounce of fluid she's ever consumed in her life. (laughs) The, The books have those nice little pencil drawings. Can you imagine? But like... I'm sorry to be laughing at this imaginary girl's like horrific death, but like, yeah. Well, she, it, this is the thing also where I have questions about this as a teaching tool that we can get to at the end. Um, but mm-hmm. probably the cholera on board the Red Wing would have come from the bilge, which is all the wastewater on the ship, and somehow the bilge containment was breached. So it is a minor miracle that only Marta gets uh, cholera and only Marta dies of it. Like, she's just the most unlucky little girl in all of Minnesota territory. Because the thing about cholera is that once it's in your water supply, everybody who is using that source as a water supply is directly in harm's way. I mean, it is incredibly historically plausible for the riverboat to be both the vector for disease and the bilge to be the source. In 1878... There was a case where a tugboat called the John D. Porter spread yellow fever up and down the Mississippi River, and it's estimated that 20,000 people died. And it turns out that in that case, yellow fever spreads through a mosquito bite. Uh, The bilge, because it's stagnant water, was a mosquito paradise, and they were like flying to shore and biting people everywhere the boat docked. Infectious disease also was just a huge problem. Uh, At this time, I saw a document that estimates that 90% of pioneer deaths were caused by infectious disease. So that's sort of my history corner. Cool. So Kirsten's context? Kirsten's context is is the cholera context. So every American Girl book comes with a little addendum at the end. Uh, In Meet Kirsten, it's called The Look into the Past. It basically is an attempt to give you the context. What did you make of of Kirsten's look into the... Looking back. It's called The Looking Back section. I apologize. Sonia has feelings. (laughs) I have so much to say. Let's see. We can start out with, quote, many of the early immigrants came from countries where farmland was poor. People were starving because they could not grow enough food. That's just flatly. the Like, it, it just it makes it sound like, oh, we everywhere else is just terrible land. And that's why everyone's leaving rather than being like, oh, yeah, farm work. It's not a lot of farm work to go around because we're industrializing and like, you know, machines are replacing people in the fields. So now they have to like either find work in the cities or go elsewhere. And it's just like. But Sonia, how are the little girls of America going to know that America is the only and best country in the world? And this is this is my my secondary because it it started with that. And I'm like, 
That's a ridiculous Sonia, There claim. are no cats in America. <laughs> and then we get to the end section where it's rounding off like, wow, the immigrant experience. And you get, quote, if Kirsten's family had stayed in Sweden, she would have never seen the ocean or even a town more than 20 miles from the place she was from. Fuck? Because they became immigrants, she traveled halfway around the world. She saw machines she had never dreamed of, like trains and paddle wheel boats. She saw busy cities like New York and Chicago. Like, I'm sorry, why are they making it sound like Sweden there, has a coast? Sweden, there, she could see the Sweden ocean. Has significant archipelagos. <laughs> Number one, they have a coast. They have city exists. Like, what is happening? As an American, as an American, I have to point out that um, no other country in the world has technology, or metropolitan centers, or the ocean. (laughs) The ocean. (laughs) She she's from Sweden. Other other countries other countries have the ocean, but the only reason you would look at it is to stare wistfully off in the direction of America. <laughs> like it's just such but a strange thing to run. The problem in Sweden is that farm work was scarce because they were industrializing. Because they were industrializing. Exactly. This is what this is what I'm saying. Like, because it opens with the like, oh, like everyone was immigrating because there all the soil is bad and then it ends with like, I wonder who did that never would have seen the ocean or a machine <laughs> also the, the whole thing when they're all totally they've never heard of trains before and they're totally bewildered by it like I understand it was relatively new technology but but still but. relatively but by the mid 19th century europe had done away with the passport because so many people were moving so quickly between so and we have a break time about this if yeah. you want to look at it but the passport had existed from the time of louis XIV at least uh until the mid 19th century which is around 1850 because locomotive yeah. travel had introduced the ability to move quickly and so people were traveling all over Europe and moving from country to country super quickly but they were going to screw up the train schedule so much by checking papers for everyone that they were just like we don't need this anymore um and it wasn't until the like crisis of world war 1 that passports were reintroduced yes so yeah they probably took a train from their small town in Sweden to the boat to get to America. This is what I'm saying. Like, where did they board the boat? Like, did they board the boat in the middle of nowhere? No, they would have gone to, like, a metropolitan area. And possibly not even in Sweden. They they may have transferred. Yeah, they could have gone from, like, Sweden to, like, the UK or somewhere uh, further out into the Atlantic and then boarded a transatlantic boat there. You know, they're, like, they're like, rural, not stupid. Yeah. They they know how steam power works. Like, I'm just in the context of an industrializing nation to have your, like, history section at the end say, yeah, these people don't know what a paddle boat is. They don't know what a train is. Like, they they never would have seen the ocean. It's not, it's not computing. The math yeah. does not matter. Yeah. I find this kind of interesting because it's, from my perspective as like right my focus is is on north america uh sort of moving into the 19th century i find that the things that seem to speak poorly 
to the experience in North America are the ones that are the most accurate, right? Like the the people who are conning recent immigrants trying to get west, super common. That's literally what happened to the Donner Party. There's some racism happening in there because a bunch of indigenous people told them not to listen to this guy, but he took all of their money and then abandoned them and they ended up eating each other. Yeah. So like that's an accurate description of these like manifest destiny trips, you know, these pioneer trips out west. That is true. The uh, steamboats and locomotives take over North America and Europe faster than like people adopted cell phones right cell phones were introduced in the 80s as like these like car phones and stuff they didn't really catch on until like the mid 2000s right yeah whereas steam transport it was like 20 years and they're like blowing up everywhere yeah and like the steamboats all up and down the mississippi have become like cultural icons like people are just that's how you get around now and the disease that comes with that, the issues of like uh, changing populations and kind of xenophobia and everything that comes along with it, that seems to be like relatively like accurately depicted in the book. And then, yeah. and then it's like all of the other things that they want to say about like what it means to be American is garbage. <laughs> Yeah, and there's there's other details that they get really right in the book, like the the Christianity and this kind of like. Yeah. I was surprised to see that in a children's book, given that I mean the '80s were a different time, but I think like you probably wouldn't have a lengthy discussion about how Marta is now in heaven and we will pray for her if you re-release this book now. Depending on who's releasing it. Depending on who, but it would be a culture war thing. Like it wouldn't just be like neutrally these are yeah. people who. Yeah who who just happened to be probably Lutheran. Yeah. Yeah, and one of the things that struck me about the looking back section is that it's largely about forming an empathetic bond with historical immigrants. And, like, yeah. it's about, like, put yourself in her shoes. How would you feel if you had to leave your doll behind? How would you feel if you had to move to a whole new country and you could never see your family again? And that's, I think, a good thing it does. Like, I think it's good to be empathetic yes. about immigrants both historical and contemporary. Like, I think it is correct to teach children to be kind to others. Mm -hmm. But the big picture stuff, like the doctrine of manifest destiny and what is Sweden, they get wrong or they omit. They just don't engage with that legitimately. And like, to be clear, I understand not, I understand not going like deep into manifest destiny right in a book for eight-year-olds but I think to not mention like even even like just mentioning the idea of like the United States government wanted to expand the country into like these territories where indigenous people live like there's nothing no mention whatsoever yeah so I think this is the part of like this discussion where we get into what the pleasant company is trying to create as the idea of the American girl, which I find is really complicated, especially with Kirsten here. Because like, right, and we'll we'll get to them later, Molly and Samantha are really obvious as to like what they're saying there, right? They are 20th century white girls. That's just gonna happen, right? Like you're gonna have characters that are gonna be those girls. 
I think it's really interesting that they chose one of their original girls to be an immigrant. So like you are saying that like to be an American girl doesn't necessarily mean that you're born in America or that you speak English or that you have whatever these cultural ties are. But I will say that they have done a very careful job of deciding which immigrant group to represent here right especially in the 80s in the time of like the prairie home companion and like all of this stuff um where she is like outside of being like you know like scotch english this is like pretty much as white of a midwest kind of american experience that you could get when they're talking about like this immigrant experience they're explicitly not talking about the other major immigrant movements that are happening in the 1850s which is um, the Irish from the potato famine which they would then have to get into the fact that the English purposefully created a famine in order to kill the Irish who then came to America and were horribly mistreated and the Italians who are going through a political crisis and agricultural crisis of their own a significant number of southern Italians are moving to New York which is where they first land in America uh, and other places up and down the east coast and they're staying in urban areas and so we're not having this urban uh, like rural to urban immigrant experience and we're explicitly not having a southern European immigrant experience because that would require dark hair and Catholicism well but there's also this way in which like when Kirsten shows up in New York and gets lost people are just like what is this girl and her freak language nobody's like I've seen a Swede before because they're coming in droves and there's also no other Swedes to help her well, that and the yes. the urban experience is people just ignoring her, people being generally kind of cruel. Like, it's, like, complicated. A, yeah. And I think it would have to be much more complicated if you were going to do an Irish or Italian experience of moving from a rural space to an urban space. And so, like, on the one hand, I'm like, oh, it's so nice that, like, one of these first American girls isn't born in America. But on the other hand, like, it so fits this, like, prototypical American heritage idea of who gets to be American, Protestant and white and blonde. I also think, like, again, another quote I pulled from Peek into the Past (laughs) is the... Speaking about the immigrants there, they encouraged others to join them on the frontier in places like Minnesota, where there was plenty of good land for anyone who was willing to work well, hard. And you're like, th- yeah, but that's that's no mention of other people. No, but that's there. literally the preemption act. Literally, is like if you're willing to show up yes. and. But I'm, I'm saying we should we should leave this for the the very right. end, and then we can transition into Margot being like, and we will right. actually discuss how these books portray indigenous people next yeah. time. It's the preemption act. We got to leave it on the a preemption act comes from a, uh, and again, like teasing for the the next episode, the preemption act comes from a long tradition of uh, white immigrant squatters. Um, literally called squatters in the bill yes yeah yeah um and and called squatters in in multiple other um uh government documents and government policies um previously this goes back to literally the like very beginning of um the nation that we now call the united states 
of America. So like we will get into all of that. It is super messed up. I, I have two more um, things that I need to get through on my list, which are just one, I need yeah, you I need to talk about like is this good history, this book? Like is this good education? And then I I need you to give me your rating. Um and I have a rating system. Uh that okay. is bespoke. Okay, I have a book I have a bespoke rating system for this book. Um so, I think that's a great idea that we can do yes. all of them. Okay. Yes, I think we should rank them and then at the end of each season we should I'm set we need to release a video where we do tier list. Yes. You put them yeah. at A tier or S tier to D tier and we decide which book is the best. Yeah. Definitively. That's great. Cool. Yeah. So Okay. Does this succeed as history? Like, is this a thing you can use to teach children? Yeah, this was where I came oh. down. <laughs> because so I think in some ways, in some ways, it it can be part of a lesson plan and say, like, yeah. this does a couple yes. things really well in terms of teaching you about transportation and actually how immigration worked at this time. But it is not good at anything else. Broader context. Yeah. yeah. And I, I think that in the 80s, probably, this was an excellent teaching resource. And now that we are just more aware of the ways in which historical teaching resources have failed. Yeah. So I think like and this is one of the things that like I have this conversation over and over again, especially with the people that I like um consult for as a public historian is that there is a, a a disconnect between especially in like um like public historical education uh that I think there's been so especially in the 90s there's been a big reckoning with so like I got really into American girls around the same time actually I'm going to find these photos and we can put them up on the Instagram and put them on TikTok. I have somewhere um, a whole book of, I think I must have been eight or nine. I had my American Girl doll. I was obsessed with the books and my grandparents took us to Colonial Williamsburg, another place that I became obsessed with. Actually, for most of my time as a child, it was my dream to work at Colonial Williamsburg. Um, but uh, in the in the 90s, um, Colonial Williamsburg really had sort of a reckoning with what its mission was. Um, and there's like a whole bunch of weird things about the founding of Colonial Williamsburg. But one of the things that they were really reckoning with and that a lot of these kind of cultural historical institutions like Colonial Williamsburg were reckoning with is the divide between history and heritage. Um, Right. So history is what actually happened in the past. Uh, what was the ideology of the past? What are people actually doing? Why are they doing it? What are these causal relationships like? And heritage is what does it mean to be American? And what does it and like there's deep political motivations in heritage that are very different from the political motivations of history. Yeah. Right? Um, the political yeah. motivations of history, I think, are mostly like explanatory and um i think fundamentally history moves towards equity and heritage does not always do that it is much more of a divisive idea and i think that 
I'm I'm curious as we move through these books to see what now that American Girl is no longer a pleasant company product it's they were purchased by mattel and american girl has its own whole like thing now and is produced by you know one of the like big three toy companies um sort of what their heritage motivation is because like they're obviously not coming from like they're never going to be coming from like doing the kind of work that colonial williamsburg is now doing where they moved completely away from we are a heritage organization to we are a history organization and there's some really fantastic books about what they've done for that like movement towards accuracy and um yeah the teaching that they do there and and american girl hasn't hasn't done that uh, so like that's and those are the parts of the book that I really like struggled with uh, was where they are really like doing the um, what is an American girl work of the, the scene book. where Kirsten uh, where like, comes out and her mom is like oh there's my American daughter I was yeah. like whoa that happened fast <laughs> so it's just yeah I think there's like those moments where I'm interested in what they're doing with the new books, um, but those would be the things that I would think you would have to do a lot. Of, like if you're going to use it in a classroom or you're going to like give it to your children or you're just sort of looking back and like working through the biases that you had as a as a child that you've brought into your adult life and trying to like do a lot of unworking. Like that's the part that I think in the same way that like if you give a kid a book that contains like some sort of sexual content or violence where you're like we need to sit down and like have a conversation about this I think it's that part where with all of these books you have to sit down and have a conversation about like yeah so what what do we think American girls are like what who do we think gets included in American girlhood with your kid because it's not just like who do we think immigrants to what do immigrants to America look like yeah and it doesn't just it doesn't escape me that Kirsten but the moment where her mother declares that she's American she's been stripped of her Swedish best friend. She's been stripped of her doll like the toy she brought from Sweden just all of her like all of her material culture yeah. from Sweden and and all she has to play with yeah. like she plays with her cousin's american girl dolls like her american dollies yeah. uh mm-hmm. and yeah it doesn't escape me that there is a process there of like well you have to shed the immigrant you and become the american you um yeah. and we'll, yeah. i think they do I think they do get more a little more complicated as it goes on yeah. um in the books about Kirsten like they do keep a lot of their traditions and obviously they keep speaking yes. Swedish um, but also but she does Kirsten learns a lesson happens at school yeah but also I was gonna so, say like, like there are ways in which focusing just on meet Kirsten it seems pretty dire at the end of the book like Marta's <laughs> dead sorry <laughs> is MIA and but everything's fine because the cousins are nice. Like I'm, I'm very. And they're American now. It's fine because now they're American. They don't need any of their things from Sweden. They don't need to have any of their. They don't need to look back and remember any of these things from Sweden. They're American. How does that like for 
because uh, like I like I don't I don't come from a particularly complex uh, American heritage. Like in terms of like, do we get to count ourselves as American? Uh, we were Scots in seventeen forty. So like, <laughs> but like for you guys have sort of more complicated relationships with being in North America. Like what? How does that speak to your experience? Well, I'm literally. Uh, like I hold two passports. I'm German Canadian. So like, yeah. yeah, I spoke German in my house growing up. I speak German on the phone of my mother. And like we had, we do German Christmas. Uh, and um, yeah, we also are Jewish, uh, but we are Christmas having Jews for complex culture, like because culture is always layered. Uh, yeah. And that immigration story is, you know, there was heinous political violence. And so they packed up their infants and fled for their lives. Uh, and on that side, there was no, like, uh, anecdotally, at least through what my parents have said, there was no struggle. It was just like, well, this place is super not working out for us. And we are really going to miss, we're going to miss our family. We're going to miss our friends. We're really upset and worried for them. But we're Canadian now. Like we don't, we don't want to be. Yeah. We don't want to be from that place anymore. We don't want to be from the old country. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. So yeah, it was very simple on my side, but also it was over. Like it was a, over a hundred years ago, right? Where yeah, like most of my ancestors or most of who came over at that time changed their names at least once and were like. Yeah, I've reinvented myself. I need to. It's a survival mechanism. We're not going to dwell on it. We don't have to psychoanalyze it. I don't know. I don't know if it's different for more recent immigrants. Yeah, I mean, I think, like, for me, right, like, my family is all, like, Ukrainians in Canada, which is, like, a whole other, like, Canadian situation of like people also coming over like with yeah it's vaguely the similar thing as minnesota right where it's Mm -hmm. like well we need people who are like white enough to populate (laughs) the western provinces yeah and they're like well these people seem to be having a rough go of it maybe we should tell them that they can get free land if they come over here and sit on it and work the land for long enough um but yeah like I kind of have the like staggered situation where like on my dad's side people came in like kind of a because it would be his mom was born in Toronto but her parents were both born in Ukraine Mm -hmm. and my dad's dad was born in Ukraine Mm -hmm. and then my mom is Ukrainian Mm -hmm. so like whole staggered Mm -hmm. family situation right so like I feel like I grew up in much more of that, like, you sort of have your, like, cultural community, and then there's the Canadian community that you have, like, right, like, through school and work, but, like, your family and, like, you know, church, dance lessons, going to Ukrainian school, like, all that kind of stuff is all being done in Ukrainian with people who either are immigrants or were raised by immigrants. So it's this like yeah. much more kind of fluid, like Yeah, and you still get where are you still you? get distinctions like in, in 
the community I grew up in, the Jewish communities that I've moved in in my life. Um, there's this, yeah, you we're Canadian, but we're Jewish Canadian, and we have our own ways that harken back to our old lives. Um, but we're not like some of that stuff we do. It's traditional, but we're not like. There was a just sort of a kind of, especially in my family, a decision that like, yes, we were going to be Canadian. We were going to be Jewish Canadian. We were not going to be, uh, give that up. We were not giving up that tradition, but we weren't desperate to hang on to the Yiddish language, for instance. Right. Uh, like I'm the only Yiddish right. speaker since my grandfather. Uh, yeah. So... I just feel like Kirsten... I feel like Kirsten's kind of a tidy immigrant. Kind of, yeah, yeah. I, I'm afraid that she's going to lose a lot of things that should be... And I know, like, and so this, we can, like, also sort of get into the sort of interesting uh, immigration, immigrant culture that happens on the plains, where, like, there are still... Um, multiple towns and counties even in the u.s out on the on the plains in the midwest um that are functionally not english counties um they're german or a significant number of like norwegian yeah. Um, not a lot of Swedish that I know off the top of my head, but like there are multiple like counties where the working language for the county is is German. Yeah, well, and this uh, is also a thing about like diaspora some diaspora communities like really like the Norwegian community, which is another Scandinavian community, has really clung to their language and yeah. their language and their their cultural traditions. Uh and the Swedish community has a lot of their cultural traditions. Um but perhaps we will see that like the language itself becomes less important and what becomes important is that you you yeah. preserve the traditions in whatever language. Okay. Yeah. I think that's an interesting complicated America's a complicated place, y'all. Yeah, I actually hot think I actually from, think hot take from the American girls. My my America's my complaint a- is that of this book is like in addition to erasing manifest destiny. Uh, Kirsten is too bland to grapple with these questions of what is my relationship yeah. to Sweden? Yeah. What is my relationship to America? Mm, fair. I think we've sucked all the marrow there is to suck out of meat, Kirsten, given that it is a slight yes. and devoid of personality. 40 pages long and mostly pictures. Yes. So out of a possible five cholera-ridden uh, paddle boats. How many do you give me, Kirsten? Um, is do is the the five is is five good? is like, like we want multiple five is like cholera. maximum. Five is like excellent top okay. cholera business. I f- I think maybe two. Okay, here two. I'm hoping that as we get to know Kirsten, as Kirsten's story unfolds, we learn more history. Uh, My great hope is that since Sweden is a hideous backwater that is barren and and (laughs) prehistoric, they just hadn't invented personalities yet. And now that she's in America, Kirsten can have one. one. (laughs) She she can buy one with her good American money. 
Oh, yeah, I was one. about to say, I think I, I have to give it one cholera-ridden steamboat. It's egregious to say, well, we're from Sweden, so she would have never seen the ocean. <laughs> that thing Sweden is surrounded just, by on several sides. Scandinavia is a fucking peninsula. Okay, and also, and, and this is me being a European, and like Scandinavia is quite large and extremely diverse and very, very beautiful. But it's not yeah. so large that you can't get from deep inland to the ocean conceivably within your nine years of age. Like, also within your lifetime, right? Like, they say she would never have seen yeah. the ocean. Like, I think not. She would have. Um, yeah, so I also give it two out of five cholera-ridden steamboats, which brings us to a total of five steamboats, five, or sorry, five paddle boats out of a possible 15. <laughs> Listen, it just means we have nowhere to go. Yes, but, oh, it can only yeah. improve from here. Yeah, so next week where Kirsten learns a lesson, hopefully we all learn a lesson too about uh, indigenous relations in the Midwest. I can't believe we're attempting sure. this in 1986. Uh, I'm just very excited to see how Kirsten takes to being a real American girl. Can't wait to see where she goes next. And I'm sure that any indigenous relations... It's going to be great. going to be portrayed respectfully and in a way that is tactful and graceful. <laughs> Everyone, uh, thank you for listening. And I guess that's, that's it for yeah. me. American Girlies is a production of the Baba Yaga Project. We are produced by Sam Gleeman. We are hosted by Sonia M. Farmer-Mathieu and Hannes Barwasser-Soroka. Our music is composed and performed by Esther Ruth Thiel. This episode was edited by Samuel Greenman and mixed by Margot Mathieu. The podcast is brought to you by Patreon subscribers, just like you. If you would like to support the show, please check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash Project for bonus content and extra goodies. We are at Yaga Project on Twitter and at Project on TikTok and Instagram. Bye, girlies!